Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Today, I want to talk about another emotion that many of us deal with, and I should say many, all of us deal with, to varying degrees. It's the emotion of anger. Anger. Today's title is Feel Free Anger. Now, anger, as we know, can be very destructive in relationships. It can be a very difficult emotion to deal with in our hearts. I heard about an elderly couple here at Dwelling Place who were talking one evening about many of their fights over the years. And they started talking, and the wife, in a very moment of kind of candor, so to speak, humble candor, she said to her husband, she said, uh, honey, how in the world do you manage to stay so calm? Like in all of the fights that we've had, you always remain so calm. And I've blown up so many times on you over the years. How do you stay so calm? He said, oh, honey, it's very easy. He said, after you blow up on me, I just go and clean the toilet. And she said, you go and clean the toilet after our fight? And she said, yeah. He said, well, how in the world does that help? He said, because I'm using your toothbrush. So... So the way we deal with anger is different, right? I mean, there are good ways to deal with anger, then there are bad ways to deal with anger. Now, I don't know anyone in the room who doesn't look back at some point in their life and wish they could take back something they said in anger or something they did in anger. One of my favorite Seinfeld episodes is when George Costanza leaves a message on the voicemail of a person incorrectly with the wrong information. He spends the whole rest of the episode trying to go back to get to the voicemail to erase it before it's heard by the person, right? There are moments in our life where we wish we could take back things we've said. Or, or like me, have any of you ever sent an email in haste that you wish you could take back? Or how many of you have ever hit reply all when you only needed to reply to one person? Come on, have you ever done that? I've done that in conversation with a, 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 a ministry partner, and the ministry partner was not was giving us a hard time. And so instead of forwarding it on to somebody else who was on staff, I hit reply all to the person, and I said some choice words about that person. Well, you find me in the floor of my office thinking, how can I get into cyberspace and take that back? Like, how can I get in there and bring that back, Right. You can't. Most of us look back and we see relationships that were lost or at least damaged through anger. Some of you have lost jobs or you've even gone to jail because of an inability to control anger. And by the way, don't mistake or make the mistake of thinking that if you're not a person that's prone to violent outbursts, that you have no issues with anger. Some of you, you're really aggressive in how you process anger, but others of you, you're more passive in your approach. I tend to think that one's actually more prevalent in our nation today. Someone makes you mad you give them the silent treatment, or you give them the cold shoulder, or you give them withdrawal of your presence or indifference. You punish them by removing the blessing of your presence. And, and as if you are God, you simply turn your face away as if it's punishment enough. You nurse a bitterness towards them that eventually comes out, first of all, I should say comes out as sarcasm. And then it turns into some kind of emotional withdrawal or what we call emotional avoidance. And then it eventually leads to disdain for them or for a whole group of people they represent. Lest we tend to think that this message is not for us, I wrote down in my own notes some of a list of statements that we make that shows that we are nursing anger in our hearts. Statements like, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. Why can't I have a bad day without it being so bad? Why can't I have a bad day without it being a big deal? Oh, and I guess you never make a mistake. Oh, you're being too insensitive. I'm sick of being the only one in this relationship who says, I'm sorry. Sorry to unload on you, I just needed to vent. Chances are, if you said one of those, if you've made one of those kind of statements, you're dealing with an anger issue that you've never really admitted to yourself. And I just want to tell us that each of those can end up being destructive in very subtle ways. Anger is one D away from danger. From danger. One letter. And the reality is when we find ourselves... Losing our cool or losing our temper, we're always losing. Something's being lost in that encounter. So our focus today is not on the best and healthiest expressions of anger, but our focus today is what our anger reveals about what's going on in our hearts. Because that's where the Bible's focus is. Before it teaches you how to manage your emotions, the Bible teaches you first how to read your emotions, how to understand your emotions, how to understand what's going on 
in your life. Now, when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, I was looking at it again this week. It's almost like the Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians 4 for our, our nation. Like, we are an angry nation, are we not? We are an angry society living in an angry time. If you have any doubts, just turn on one of these talk shows at night, right? I mean, it's all over them. You turn on MSNBC or CNN, and they're indignant, and they're losing their minds about something. You flip over to Fox News, and they're queued up, and they're, they're mad about the same stuff and really, really angry about it. People seem, if you will, in our nation, they seem to be queued up, ready to explode at any time, whether it's the classroom, whether it's at work, whether it's on the freeway. So when we read Paul's words here, it seems like they're written for us. I want to read them again. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Let no corrupting, verse 29, talk come out of your mouth, but only as such as is good for building up, as building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 31, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, and shouting, and slander be what removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you. In Christ. In this passage, I see three things. Number one, I see a confusing command be angry, but do not sin. Number two, I see Paul's answer to anger. Number three, I see how we can be what I'm terming angry like Jesus. How can we be angry like Jesus? Number one, a confusing command. He says to be angry and do not sin. Note first that Paul commands us to be angry, that is an, an, an imperative. If we are never angry, we are actually disobeying Scripture. Be angry as if knowing you're going to be angry as a human being and do not sin. There are times you must be angry. Now, some of us were raised to think that any feelings of anger we have were, not, were wrong. But that's not a Christian idea. The Buddhist idea, the Buddhist understanding is that annihilation of emotion is a virtue. A virtue. So you are actually virtuous when you annihilate all your emotions. Christians don't believe that. Rather, the Bible teaches that anger is a necessary part of love. Let me say it this way. Anger is a necessary component of love. Can I define anger for you right quick? Anger is a destructive energy that is released in defense of something you love. I'm going to say it again. Anger is a destructive energy released in defense of something you love. Now, that may sound bad, but think about it. When you love a person that's dying of cancer... You hate and you are angry at the cancer that is eating their body. So you release a destructive force called chemotherapy to destroy all of the cells and free radicals in their body. Anger is what? It is a destructive energy released in defense of something you love. If I love my kids, I hate and am angry when they lie because I know when Knox lies, that lying is destroying his soul. I know and hate, if I love my kids, rebellion. When they disobey their mom, I hate it because I know that rebellion is moving them further and further from God. So I hate the thing that is against the thing I love. Anger is destructive energy to what? To free up or to go against uh, something that I really, really deeply care about. That's what anger is. If I love the glory of God, I'm angry at whatever diminishes the glory of God or attacks the glory of God. Now, Jesus, listen, church, he was an angry person at times. He got angry, we could say it that way. He got angry many times in the Gospels. If you think Jesus walked away or walked around in a sea of tranquility with a serene look with Ric Flair hair blowing in the wind, you are wrong. Okay, That's not who Jesus was, not the Jesus of the Gospels. Jesus indeed got angry. Mark chapter 3, after he heals the man who had a shriveled hand, he discerns very easily in his own spirit that the, the Pharisees are only interested in catching him healing and breaking the Sabbath. So the Bible says Jesus is filled with anger. Mark says that they would promote religious custom over their love of a fellow human being. So his anger towards the Pharisees grew out of his love for the man with the shriveled hand. Anger is what? It's a destructive energy used in defense of something that you love. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus got violently angry. How did he get violently angry? He got violently angry at the religious leaders and the money changers because they had kicked all of those who were less fortunate because the less fortunate, the only place they could go in the temple was the outer courts. So Jesus saw that they took the less fortunate people, kicked them out of the outer courts, and he began to make money. The, the, the men were making money there. They had, they had pushed them out. And so Jesus comes in and sees that these people have pushed all the outsiders outside the temple. So he makes a whip out of some cords and he drives them out. 
Please understand, Jesus never regretted that later. He never comes to us in the Gospels and said, oh, guys, I'm sorry, the motion's got the best of me, disciples. I'm really sorry for driving them out. No, and Jesus went to the cross sinless. That means that his act of anger was not in sin. It was not a sinful act. For him to do what he did, which is destructive energy released at those things in defense of those he loves, it was not sinful. Now, to be clear, very clear, I'm not saying you should drive out people with whips when you get angry because you have neither the clarity nor the control Jesus did. Are we clear on that? I don't want nobody this week getting complaints. I get complaints where you tried this and you blamed it on Pastor Craig. Okay, I don't want none of that. I'm just trying to say that if you never get angry, you're not much like Jesus. If you never get angry, you're not much like Jesus. John Chrysostom, he was one of our church fathers, lived in the third century. If you know Hagia Sophia, he preached at Hagia Sophia. He said this, he said, it's true that he that is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is cause also sins, and perhaps to an even greater degree. So you should be angry when you hear about the rights of others being trampled on. You should be angry when you hear stories about people being abused by people they trusted. In the face of evil, if you aren't angry, you're not loving. Jesus got angry sometimes because he loved so much. So Paul says, be angry and yet don't sin. There is a kind of anger that is sinful. There's a kind of anger that is not sinful. Sinful anger, you ready? comes from loving the wrong things or loving the right things out of proportion. That's what sinful anger is. It's loving the wrong things or loving the right things to too much of a degree. See, if what we love is messed up, then our anger will be messed up. If anger is destructive energy released in defense of things we love, then if the thing we love is wrong, then our, our anger will be wrong. If our loves are out of order, then our angers will be out of order. So when we have sinful anger, it's two things. It's number one, we love the wrong things or and we love the right things out of proportion. So we love the right things too much. St. Augustine said, the root of our sinfulness is disordered loves. Disordered loves. The root of our anger is disordered loves. Love that's for the wrong thing or love that's for the right thing and too much. It's not wrong, for example, to value your reputation and name. But if you love your name and reputation too much, you will get inordinately angry when someone insults your ego. See, there it is. It's a good thing to love your reputation, but it's a bad thing to love your reputation too much. If you love control, you love convenience, you love comfort, what does that mean? When those things are threatened, guess what you'll do? You'll get angry. You'll get upset. You'll get mad. Whenever someone makes you mad, here's what you got to do. You should always ask, what is your anger defending? That's as practical as I can get today. Whenever you're mad, whenever you get mad, you can ask yourself, what is my anger defending? Is it defending myself or is it defending something that's good and godly? For instance, if I, I have a home office, and I work from, I work from at home. I work from it a lot in the mornings. If my kids irritate me because they're running around outside of my office and making it hard for me to work, what am I angry about? There might be a teaspoon of righteous anger in there about how they, they are very thoughtless of others and are being really, really loud, but mainly my anger is that I'm being inconvenienced. Because anger is always defense of something that you love. And my convenience was my love. I'm not thinking about how precious they are and what little time I have with them. I'm only thinking about how my plans got messed up. Let me tell you, parents, when your teenager comes home late, let me be clear here. When your teenager comes home late, what drives your anger? Is it the fact that he or she calls you to lose sleep? That's not the biggest issue. Emotionally, you may, you may want to make it the big issue that you couldn't go to sleep till they got home. That's how the episode affected you. But the biggest issue is their disregard for rules. You told them to be home on time. Is that what your anger is focused on, that they are rebellious and it's taken them from God, or is it that you were inconvenienced? See, very clearly, we can begin to start asking questions. Is what your anger focused on something good and godly, or is it just how it affects you? If I get mad at my wife because she's texting when I'm trying to talk with her, is it lovingly motivated because I'm concerned with the harm that her self-absorption is doing to her marriage? Or am I mad because I'm being inconvenienced when I want her eyes on me? See, it's a very clear, very subtle way to ask that question. Anybody else in the room? Just be honest now. You get mad 
When traffic is slow on 575 and those cars shoot the ramp as far down as they can go, and then they come over in front of you. Anybody else besides me? Okay, cool. Just pastors messed up. That's cool. That's awesome. You guys take your halo and shine them real good, you angels. Just shine them. Okay, just shine them. Okay? I get mad. I get mad. You know what I do? I get two inches from the bumper in front of me, and I say, over my dead body, are you coming in right there? You can go all the way down that sideline all you want to do, but you're staying on that sideline today. Okay? I, I get two inches from them. Now, how do I know if that's righteous anger or unrighteous anger? Well, I know mine's not loving anger because when I'm the one shooting down that lane, I'm like, man, these people need to understand. I got places to go. I'm a pastor. I got to meet with people on time, right? That's how I know mine's not loving anger. When you get mad at work, are you getting mad at work because your contributions weren't recognized? Is it fueled? Is your anger fueled by love for your own praise? Well, here's how you know. Do you get just as mad when credit is withheld from someone else in your work? No, you don't. That's why you're mad because you want personal praise. Do you get that mad when somebody else does a good job in your workplace and they don't get credited with the the credit? Is it righteous anger or unrighteous? It's the same moral corruption, but it probably doesn't anger you as much as when they get no recognition because it doesn't cross your selfish desires. Craig, what's the point? The point is our anger becomes problematic because our loves are out of disorder. And we deal with disordered anger by addressing the disordered love that fuels it. That's how we're supposed to do. It's this issue called pride, folks. And it's been around since the beginning of life. Pride of life. And it's very destructive. Please understand, pride in this sense is serious stuff because who wants to be detestable in the sight of God? Anybody? But yet, that's what the pride of life is. It makes us detestable in the sight of God. We've got to take this seriously. See, every day I've got a choice. Every day I've got a choice. It's like we all have a spotlight in life. So there's the place that the lights will go flashing ballistically if we have a fire alarm. Right here is another fire alarm. Right over here is another couple of lights for the fire alarm. We've got a camera looking at live stream there. We've got a thermostat. Looks like 70 degrees in here. Let's see if King put all the ceiling tiles back in. Let's make sure he did, if King did that or not. Yep, there we got a speaker right there. We got an Acer, Acer projector right there. It's like all of us in life, we have a spotlight. That's what we do. And every day I have a choice. I could do this. The posture I should take every day is I've got the spotlight on the cross. I'm living with the spotlight of my life on the cross. So I want you to not look at me, culture. I don't want you, America, to look at me. I'll turn my back to you. I just want my life to put a spotlight on the cross. So I want to keep my life on the spotlight of the cross. This is what you were created to do. You were designed to bring glory to God. You were created to bring glory to God. And so you operate and function at highest capacity when you are putting the spotlight on the cross. But far too often what normally happens in America is we do this. I just want everyone to see my accomplishment at work and I just wish they would look at me and I just want everybody looking at me. Look at what I've done. Hey, look at what I've done. I'm really, really great. Would you keep your eyes on me? Hey, just keep focusing on me. Would you just look at me? That's why it becomes so countercultural when you walk through the street and you don't have a light shining on your face because everybody else has a light shining on their face. And when you can take the light off of your face and put the light on his face and the light on other people, it becomes countercultural because most of us, we walk around like this and don't, don't get me wrong, dwelling place. You're saying, no, I don't think I'm that great. Well, listen, just because you don't think you're that great doesn't mean you don't have pride because here's another way insecurity masks itself as pride. Oh, I'm, I'm awful. I just need counseling. The pastor's got to meet with me. I'm just horrible. I'm like nobody else in the church. And still, that is still self-absorption. It's just done in insecurity. So he says, in order to deal with this unrighteous anger, we have to be angry and do not sin, which leads me to number two. Paul's answer to unrighteous anger. Look at verse 24. He says, put on the new man. Everybody say, put on the new man. You may notice that Paul's whole discussion on anger comes from a series of commands. But the problem is that some of these seem impossible. I mean, it seems impossible. For example, Paul commands verse 31, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, and shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. Now, to someone who's really angry, folks like really, really hurt, really, really angry, that seems like an impossible command. How do you do those things? How do you just turn off an emotion? Stop being bitter. Okay, I'll stop being bitter. Be kind. Okay, I'll be kind. Be forgiving one another. Okay, I'll do it. Now, see, when I talk about 
anger, and I talk about forgiveness, I've learned that there are three kinds of people that are struggling with what I say. Three kinds of people. Number one group believes that you ought to forgive, but you can't muster up the courage to do it. You've been wronged by somebody. You can't. You know you should, but you can't muster up the courage to do it. Group number two is those who know that they should do it, but they feel like they would be letting the offender off the hook if they did forgive. I'm letting them off the hook. And that just doesn't feel right. Here's the third group. You've claimed to have gone through the motions of forgiveness, but memories keep coming back over and over, subconscious and conscious, which leading you to wonder if you've ever really forgiven that person at all. So there's three types of groups. So the question is how, because this would be a great message if Paul would give us some practical how-tos, like how do we forgive? Well, you've got to understand, that's where it helps to understand the commands Paul's giving. This is a part of a bigger section. In verse 24, he says to put on the new man, which means to live in the new reality Christ has given you. Can I give you two parts of that new reality? Two parts of the new reality Christ has given us. Number one, verse 32, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. You can write it down this way or it's in your card in front of you. We recognize that we are first sinners and only secondly sinned against. I first heard that from a marriage counselor. My wife and I were sitting down for marriage counseling and I wanted to spend all my time telling him about how messed up she was and about how she wouldn't get in line. And she wanted to spend all of her time talking about how messed up I was. And then over a period of time, the counselor looked at me and said, well, the, I see what the problem is here. Neither of you understand the gospel. Now, that's not something you usually tell to a pastor. But he said, you don't understand the gospel. You have forgotten that you both are first sinners before you are sinned against. Both of you are acting like you are upright, righteous people that are, are being done wrong. No, you did Jesus wrong before your spouse did you wrong. See, in order for us to be able to forgive, we've got to recognize we are first sinners, then only secondly, we are sinned against. Now, I don't intend with that phrase for one spouse to beat the other spouse over the head with it and say, you should quit complaining about my sin. You've been way worse to Jesus than I'm being to you right now, so quit sinning. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying apply it to your own heart. It's something you use to think about yourself. I am a man who is deeply forgiven, and I have been forgiven of far more than I'll ever have to forgive Meredith Mosgrove of. Far more. It means that in any situation, I'm deeply aware of how much I have been forgiven. The great Christian, one of my favorite heroes of the faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed in World War II, is a German Christian who was hung. Uh, for not only a plot against Hitler, but also he would not renounce his faith in Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he talked a lot about how Christians feel at church when they see some of the hypocrisy around them. He says, when you come to church and you're a Christian, he said, there's a lot of Christians that they just, all they do is they get so disgusted with everybody else's sin in the church. They just come into church and are so disgusted. And he said, I got good news and bad news for you. He said, good news is that you're growing. You're growing because you're realizing that sin is wrong and it's something not to be enjoyed something to be engaged. He said, bad news though, is you're only in stage one. Like for instance, there are people right now that are probably not here today that are listening to me on podcasts this week because you couldn't just be around church hypocrites. Good news is you're growing, but you're only stage one. Here's stage two of spiritual growth. You no longer now come into the church and here's how you know you're maturing. You become more disgusted with your own sins than the sins of everybody else on a Sunday morning. You become disgusted with your own transgression your own iniquity he said that's good news bad news good news is you're in stage two bad news is you're still not in stage three stage three is when you now are mature enough that you enter or re-enter the church now no longer as a pharisee looking at everybody else's sin but you're realizing you're a broken sinner in need of grace and you're going to give that same grace to the people around you that's how we grow in christ that's what it means to grow in understanding so the same thing it's not that I'm unaware of people's sins around me. It's just that I'm more aware of how much God has forgiven me and Christ. So number one element is we recognize we're first sinners and only sin, secondly sinned against. Number two, it's found in verse 26. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That means we have resigned as judge of the universe. I have resigned as judge of the universe. Not letting the sun go down on your wrath means I don't carry with me to bed the the burden of righting all wrongs. God has promised to do that. So we you know what I can do? I can lay my head on my pillow at night and I can go to sleep. Why? Well, the Apostle Paul only alludes to this in Ephesians 4, but he spends another time in another letter really unpacking this. By the way, if you're new to this Bible study and Bible study in your own, 
Paul's a preacher, so that means he only has about five things he says, but he says five things a lot of different ways and in a lot of different contexts. He wrote 13 to 27 New Testament books. So one thing of Bible study is if he alludes to it in Ephesians 4, he then unpacks it in Romans 12. And in Romans chapter 12, this is how he says it, verse 17. He said, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. What's he saying? Sometimes it's not possible to live peaceably with everyone. But as, as much as depends on you, you ought to make it your ambition to live peaceably with everybody. Which means Paul is indicating he doesn't mean keeping yourself or your kids in a situation that's abu- abusive. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, which means there will be times when it's not possible. Even after you've done all that you can to forgive them and done everything you can, you have to remove yourself from that situation. By the way, if you think that's you, let me encourage you to get counsel. Let me help you. Let people help you. He goes on in verse 19. He said, beloved, never, whether you stayed in the marriage or you got out of it, it doesn't matter. Now it's an absolute never, he said, whether you stayed or you left. Never avenge yourselves. Never. There's never a time to avenge yourself. This is a hard scripture, folks. Okay, can we just admit that? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head, you say, well, that sounds exactly what I would like to do to them. Well, this is a Jewish metaphor, a Jewish metaphor. Heaping burning coals on their head means one of two things. Either it will wake them up of the injustice they've done to you by you being kind to them. That's number one translation. You be kind to them and the kindness of you, even when they've done you wrong, will make them fall under the judgment, aka they will recognize the injustice they did to you. Or number two, that's why he said in Proverbs 25, 21, don't overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Your, your kindness changes their heart. Or number two, it will increase God's judgment on them for the day that he brings judgment or vengeance. In other words, as they keep treating you badly after you've been kind to them and you're kind to them again and they do it again, God says, I'm gonna st- stay up here in heaven and I'm gonna take notes. And this is, and this is coming a day when I will look at them and say, after all the kindness they showed you, this is how you treated them and God's judgment will be worse on them and he will heap burning coals on their head. Either way, guess what? I can live free from the burden of feeling like I have to uh, rest my case. I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to get vengeance. I don't have to make my case. God promises to carry that burden. You see, I know that for the person who wronged me, one of two things is going to happen. Either the person's sins against me will be paid by the cross like mine were, or it will be paid on top of their head on the day of vengeance. So I don't have to repay it. I can trust it to the Lord. I can entrust the vengeance to the Lord. And, and, and it's not like, oh, I'm just getting away with it and the score will never be settled. No, I can show grace, which again will do one of two things to this person. It will either be like hot coals to them that helps them wake up to the injustice they've done against me. Or it will be like God's literal hot coals of judgment on them when he brings vengeance. Either way, we can make like Elsa and let it go. We can let it go. Don't hold me back any longer. Let it go. Let it go. I can't sing. I won't try. By the way, one of the charges the world likes to make about Christians today, Bill Maher just recently said this. He said, because Christians serve a God or we believe in a judging God, that makes Christians judgmental. Well, Miroslav Volf, he's a Christian Theologian, he's a, he was a survivor of the Croatian genocides. He was a, now a professor at Yale University. He said this, he said, only a spooled Westerner like Bill Maher could make a statement that stupid. He said, when you watched your whole family, including your kids and wife, be raped, beaten, and murdered, the only thing that would keep you from going insane with vengeance on people's heads is the knowledge of a just God who holds justice in his hand. If not, he said, I would just kill everybody. He said, not only did it enable me to release the anger, but it also enabled me or empowered me to give grace to the people. And I forgave the ones who did this to my family. Understand, when you try to take the role of judge, it corrupts you. 
When I try to take the role of judge, it corrupts me. That's why Paul says, letting the sun go down on your wrath gives opportunity to the devil. It corrupts us. It's like putting on the ring in the Lord of the Rings and saying, my precious anger, my precious anger. You know, like I'm going to get back at somebody. No, 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 you can't hold that. It turns you into a dark and vengeful person. You see, you and I weren't designed to play judge. Number one, why? Because we got our own sin. Number two, because we're selfish. So even when we try to exact good judgment, it's never good judgment. It's mixed in with our own selfish judgment. So trying to play judge over the wrongs done to us will corrupt us, Paul says, which is why we should turn our anger over to God and not let the sun go down on our anger. Turn over the judgment to God. Now, one quick caveat before we move on. When Paul says vengeance belongs to God, he's not saying that uh, we should not have any courts or governmental officials that exact that vengeance. And you know he says this because the very next chapter, he anticipates the Romans' objection to that statement. So he says every Roman, every government and governing authorities are God's means of protective justice. On the earth, God has committed the first wave of justice to our court systems. We have laws and courts that are supposed to be impartial as they as they can. And I know our system's jacked up, folks. I know, I understand that. But they're trying, and we should try to help the system. But what God is saying in through the Apostle Paul is although it's not a perfect system, the, the court system is ordained by God as God's first wave of protective justice on the earth. It's God's first wave. So he doesn't say do away with courts. What he means is that individuals should not carry the burden of obtaining ultimate justice for yourself. You've got to release and allow God to deal with it. So Paul's answer to unrighteous anger is to put on the new man. Everybody say, put on the new man. Which means to wrestle with the implications of the gospel, to embrace the depths of Christ's forgiveness, and resign as judge of the universe because we trust in God's judgment. So now let's spend our last few minutes considering what loving anger looks like. I'm entitling this section, How to Be Angry Like Jesus. How to Be Angry Like Jesus. How do we not only now realize be angry and don't sin, how do we put off the old anger, and then now how do we become angry like Jesus? I've got three letters under this title, letter A. Loving anger is redemptive, not vindictive. Loving anger is redemptive, not vindictive. Look at verse 29. It's directed towards the problem, not the person. Here's how Paul says it. Let no corrupting, that means tearing down, no destroying talk, no tearing down talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Your goal is building up. Even when you confront the person who's done you wrong, your goal is building up. Your desire is to remove the evil from the person, but to save the person, to give grace to the person just like Christ gave grace to you. Listen to me. Your hatred for the sin comes from an overwhelming love for the sinner. For those of you in this room, you, people sometimes dislike the phrase, oh, hate the sin, love the sinner. I hate that phrase. Hate the sin, love the sinner. How can we do that? You either love the person the way they are or you don't love the person. Well, C.S. Lewis more than 50 years ago, here's what he said. He said, for a long time, I used to think that that was a silly straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I'd been doing this all my life. His name was C.S. Lewis. Myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I kept on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about loving myself. In fact, the very reason why I hated these things was that I loved the man. I loved me. Because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did these things. So you confront the person about the wrong, but you do so without the slightest drop of malice or anger or desire to make them pay for what they did, vengeance. The confrontation, look, church, should not feel like a venting of frustration. It should not feel like an execution of justice. It should feel like an invitation to fellowship. I come against the person and I bring up what the person has done in anger to me, but I do so in a way that invites the person closer to me. Jesus had the best illustration for this. But I will say, to the contrary, admittedly, many are confused by what he says right here. I know I was for many years in my Christian journey. Matthew 5, 39, Jesus said, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left cheek also. If he slaps you on the right cheek, give him the other cheek too. What in the world does that mean? Someone's physically attacking you and you stand up there and take it on both cheeks? Oh, you got both cheeks, I'll bend over. You, you know, like, what, what happens? You just keep getting... Like, what's, what's the deal? 
Like, what's actually happening in this? Well, first of all, the person hitting your cheek is not trying to kill you. There's no school of martial art that tells you to go for the cheek. Okay? Get the cheek first. It'll knock them down. Okay? So he's not talking about someone trying to kill you here. What he's first saying for the Jew, guess what the cheek represents? Relationship. So someone's coming to you and they're doing something against you that scars the relationship. When they do that, I have three choices. You can strike back and go for their cheek. You can repay evil for evil and it's controlling you. Number two, you can offer them the same cheek. They hit the right cheek, give them the right cheek again. You know what that's called? Passive aggressive. So what you do is you start to punish the person in small ways. You silent treatment them. You quit calling them. You take it, 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 and then blow up on them, and then take it, 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 and then blow up on them again. Or number three, you can do what Jesus says, and you turn your head and you give them the other cheek, a.k.a. you're trying to reestablish the relationship that's been scarred. Wait, does that mean that they get off the hook? No, it's the exact opposite. By turning your cheek, the new cheek to them, you're absorbing what they've done wrong to you and you're saying, I steal because I've been forgiven want to reestablish the relationship with you. That's what Jesus says. That's how we're to deal with our angle. You're not going for the cheek. You're not just ignoring the evil in them. You're doing whatever it takes to reestablish the relationship. It doesn't mean you ignore the evil in them. No, it's the contrary. Part of turning the new cheek is confronting the evil in them and saying, you know what? Here's the best way I know how to say it. Loving anger is always focused on eliminating the sin while drawing close the person. That's what loving anger is. It should feel like an invitation to fellowship, not an execution of vengeance. I want to draw you close. I want to bring you closer to who I am. He says, how to be angry like Jesus? You better watch our words. Look what James chapter 3, verse 10 says. Look at the scripture. It says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. What's he saying? He's saying, my brothers, it shouldn't be this way. You shouldn't have blessing coming out of your mouth on Sunday morning, cursing out of your mouth through the week to your spouse. You want to be like Jesus, you got to... Not have cursing and blessing out of the same mouth. You can't use this mouth to praise and use the same mouth to curse. See, when you became a Christian, you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 16 says you were bought with a price. That means you honor God with your mouth. You honor God with your body. It's like this. It's like this gift. It's like a gift bag. If I said to Josh here, Josh, Merry Christmas, brother. Merry Christmas. I'll go ahead and open up your gift there. What would you get? Oh, a toothbrush, four, four toothbrushes, a set of four toothbrushes. So what if I give a great gift of toothbrush to my man Josh, and he, he washes those teeth and brushes those teeth. I mean, they're squeaky clean, right? I mean, he is flossing three times a day. He's got no gingivitis, no halitosis. He, his breath smells like Listerine. And I gave him this great gift, right? And then one day I said, um, Josh, hold on a second. Josh, um, man, my mother from Tennessee is coming in town this weekend, and she happened to forget her toothbrush. She forgot her toothbrush. If you don't mind if I can borrow that toothbrush. And then we come over here and we give it to mom. And mom, hey, just use this toothbrush here, mom. And she uses that toothbrush for two or three weeks and it comes down. I say, okay, all right, that's cool. Josh, if, I, if you don't mind, I, I'm going to go ahead and give it back to you. What's Josh going to say? He's going to say, grody. He's going to say, gross. You know what the apostle Paul says or James says in James chapter 3 and verse 10? He says very clearly, you know what you're supposed to do? You can't say to God when you are born again, "Hey God, here is my mouth. I'm going to give you my mouth." Oh, if you would you let me would you let Satan borrow that? I'm going to let Satan borrow that for a minute. And then you bring it over here to Satan and let Satan and you start gossiping and slandering everybody else in church and you start gossiping and slandering everybody else throughout the week, right? And we wonder why our teenagers have grown up and they don't love the church and love Christ anymore because we spend all of our Sunday afternoons talking about how bad the pastor was or what we didn't like in the Sunday morning service or how they did it wrong, but yet we're surprised now because they don't love Jesus and want to follow Jesus anymore. Well, you, and, and then what you do is say, okay, after he has taken his time, Satan, I've lended you my mouth for a little while. Um, God, it's Sunday morning again. You, you, want the, you want the gift back? And he says, uh, gross. I don't, want your, I don't want your mouth praising me on Sunday when your mouth is cursing me on Friday. He said, out of the same mouth? Blessing and curse? It can't, shouldn't be so, brothers. So how do we get angry like Jesus? It's a love that's redemptive, not vindictive. Number two, it is a love very clearly. Loving anger is short-lived, not long-lived. 
Loving anger is short-lived. Look at verse 26. Whether or not the sun goes down on your wrath is a test of whether it's selfish or loving. Loving anger is short-lived. You confront the person for the wrong that they committed, the injustice to God, and then you let God deal with it. And then, and only then, can you go to sleep, an unburdened person, and the sun has not gone down on your wrath. Listen to me. Selfish anger always stays with you. You nurse it. You mull over it. You mull over the injustice. You let it simmer. When my wife and I got married, we tried to put this verse into practice. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. So the way we interpreted that, because I always thought this was the interpretation, was let's never go to bed until we have everything resolved. Well, all that did was just lead to about three weeks of no sleep, okay? <laughs> that wasn't too smart because we were not about to surrender our own personal sides and own, own vantage points. No way, sirree, in the first few years of marriage, no, ain't no way you're ever admitting you're wrong. Okay? Ain't no way. So we just, after about three weeks of not sleeping, you know, we come to realize that's not what's actually being here. Here was the problem. I would try to talk to her about whatever issue it was, but even after we did, I would still be angry because I didn't, she didn't see it my way or she wasn't sorry enough or I didn't get tearful confession or she wasn't weeping at my feet telling me what an awesome husband I was and how lucky she was to get a hunk like me. You know, like I, I, I didn't get what I wanted out of it. She didn't get what she wanted out of it. So we just said, you know what? This verse is not talking about resolving all your issues before you go to bed. That's good. That's a goal of yours in marriage. Awesome, great. It's talking about the attitude you take in every single argument you go into saying, you know what, I don't have to carry the burden of settling the score or getting her to see my thing or things my way. I can confront the wrong. I can go to bed. I can leave vengeance to God and I can let God be God. I don't have to get my point proven. How long your anger lasts reveals whether it's selfish anger concerned about vengeance or it's loving anger concerned about the other person. How long does it last? Jesus' anger in the gospel is always short-lived. I've never seen this before, but this is, enough to, this is enough to preach on. In Matthew chapter 21, right after Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple, you know what it says in verse 14? The lame and the sick came to him. Yeah, I didn't get it either. The one time Jesus showed the most anger in his entire ministry, and right after that expression of anger, the most vulnerable in society flocked to him. What does that say about his type of anger? That wasn't luck. Oh, you better stay away from Jesus today. He is in a mood. He zapped five fig trees on the way to the temple this afternoon. He was so mad when he walked by the food court, he turned everyone's wine back into water. No, no, no. Jesus' anger was very calculated. It was very surgical, and it was very short-lived. It was very clear, very surgical. His anger was focused. So the vulnerable flocked to him. What happens to you right after you are most angry? Do vulnerable people flock to you? It's a great question. Which leads me to the third and final one. Loving anger is controlled. It's not only short-lived. It's not only redemptive, not vindictive, but it is short. It is controlled. Look at he says in verse 31, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. He's talking about avoiding the state where you feel consumed by anger, whether that comes out through shouting or passively through slander. Loving anger develops slowly. Everybody say slowly. The book of Proverbs says a lot about anger. It really does. This might be its main counsel. It never counsels no anger, it counsels slow anger. Look at Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So if your friend calls and says, hey, I just need to vent this Sunday, just say, proceed, fool. <laughs> Don't say that, please. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Better than the mighty. Proverbs tells us that getting angry quickly rarely has a good effect. Look at Proverbs 29, 22. An angry person stirs up conflict. A hot-tempered person commits many sins. Or in the book of James. But you know the book of James is the New Testament equivalent to Proverbs? <laughs> I mean, it's like Proverbs. That's what it is. And, and James, this is what he says in 120. Be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. It's only the grace of God that works the righteousness of God. So rather than quick and reflexive outbursts all the time, he counsels us, God counsels us to respond with patience and gentleness. Look at Proverbs 15.1. 
A what? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Look at Proverbs 19.11. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. Sometimes the best thing to do with a wrong done to you is just let it go. That will be your glory and it will diffuse a lot of anger. Can I just say something right here? Probably 80% of the rude things your spouse says to you in marriage don't need to be responded to or even confronted. There's probably 80% of what they say to you that you just need to turn and you need to walk to the other room. It's our glory to overlook an offense. Be slow to anger, not quick to anger. Loving anger is slowly developing and controlled. That's what the Bible says all throughout it. I'm almost finished. That's what God repeatedly describes, Jesse, if you'll come as being slow to anger. You know what the Hebrew phrase slow to anger means? It means that God is long of nostril. What? The Hebrew translation of God is slow to anger is God is long of nostril, which is confusing at first because you're like, how do big noses indicate slowness to anger? When the Bible says that God has a big nose, he's long nostriled, you know what it's saying? What happens when you get angry? Your nostrils begin to flare, right? You're like a bull in a china shop. Your quick tempered, your flaring nostrils get the best of you. They get going right away. But what do you do if you try to control your anger? You close your mouth and you breathe deeply through your nose slowly. And the Bible is saying that God is really, he gets mad, but it takes him a long time. Oh yeah, he, he, he gets angry, but he's slow He's slow to get long nostrils. He's long nostril. It doesn't get, he doesn't get upset very quickly. So what did Paul do? He's shown us the difference in selfishness, selfish anger and loving anger. He showed us how to develop loving anger, rid ourselves of selfish anger. So I want to close with one final thought. The world would be such a better place And think about how awesome your relationships would be so much better if you started living this way. I mean, think about that. It would lead to real freedom for you. I mean, real freedom for you. Can I tell you, church, bitterness does far more damage to your own heart than it does to whomever you're mad at. Bitterness hurts you. I've heard that nursing unforgiveness is like trying to hurt someone else by drinking a cup of poison yourself. Releasing bitterness and forgiveness is like setting the prisoner free and realizing you were the prisoner. You were the one held captive. Releasing forgiveness or holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness is like putting battery acid in a styrofoam cup and expecting them to be hurt. It's eating you up inside. Nursing bitterness and resentment gives Satan the tools he needs to destroy your heart. In 12 plus years of pastoral counseling, I can tell you people's hearts are destroyed much quicker when someone nurses moles over a bitterness, a wrong done, an anger, an offense over time. A few years ago, I read a book by a Rwandan pastor. His name was, the book's called The Bishop of Rwanda. He talks about the Rwandan pastor. His name was John Rusiena. He was a Tutsi in the genocide in Rwanda a few decades ago. He lived through the whole genocide in Rwanda. and His people were the ones that were systemically hunted down. They were raped. They were murdered and oppressed by the Hutus. He was a Tutsi. And the Hutus destroyed his clan. When they finally achieved peace, he was one of the leaders who was in charge of going back into the country to to literally bring healing to the country. And he had Tutsi. He had suffered unspeakable tragedies, unbelievable tragedies. He said this. This is what he said. He said, one of the most destructive lies that Satan uses to destroy our lives is that we must wait until the person who wronged us properly repents before we we forgive. It's the most destructive lie. He said, Jesus didn't do that. He forgave from the cross before you asked for forgiveness. He forgave before you properly apologized for what you've done. Forgiveness, he explained, is more about releasing you from the bitterness. Can I, can I just tell you as a preacher today, getting rid of resentment and bitterness is more about your relationship with God than it is your relationship with other people. It's so much more about your relation. When you forgive, you are not saying that what they did was not bad. You are not letting them off the hook. You're just realizing it's not your hook anyways. It's God's hook. God will exact vengeance. 
And that, my friends, is freedom. Some of you, you have harbored bitterness for so long, it's just eating away you like cancer. You've become an angry person. And as I was praying for you this week, a lot of you, here's what the Lord told me, a lot of you, you're, you're, what you're angry about can't find any resolution. You know why it can't find any resolution? How can you pay your 25-year-old son back for not being there for him when he was a child? You can't do it. How can you, your parents fully pay you back for not being there when you were a child? You were not a child anymore. You can't get resolution from things that are not even in this season of life. So stop saying, oh, I must wait for a proper resolution or a proper apology before I forgive. No, you forgive now like Jesus forgave you on the cross. And you get released from bitterness and you find the healing and hope that your heart and soul has longed for for many, many years. You are a prisoner. How long are you going to allow people you don't even like and people that are not even in your life and some people that are already in the grave? To control your life through unforgiveness, through bitterness, through anger. You gotta stop living in the past. You gotta stop nursing the hurt. You gotta stop mulling over the injustice and you gotta take a responsibility type attitude. I'm not trying to minimize your pain. Please understand me. I know your pain is pain. I'm just saying some of you are captive to bitterness and there is a way out this morning and this is it to release forgiveness. But you gotta trust in the sovereignty of God enough to say, God, you're going to purposely take care of all vengeance. And I trust in your sufficiency to make up in my life for how that person harmed me. Peter once asked Jesus, he said, how many times do I forgive? Seven. Do you know that the person he had in his mind had already committed probably five sins? And he was like, two more. And I'm going Old Testament on your face. You know that's what Peter was thinking. What did Jesus say? No! Seventy times seven. What? What is that? Seven represents completion. Ten represents completion. So God says, no, completion by completion. And for good luck, let's just add another seven on. What's he saying? Seventy times seven? Does that mean like at number 491, it was open season and you go Old Testament? No, he's meaning infinitely. Like Jen Wilkins said, here's what she said. We should forgive each other completely times completely with a little dash of completely in there. There's never a time you don't forgive extend forgiveness as long as Christ has extended forgiveness to you you can extend forgiveness to others God will right the wrong you can trust him with that you can receive forgiveness today some of you need to receive forgiveness others you need to grant forgiveness but you can trust in God's sovereignty to exact vengeance and God will indeed keep a perfect account thank you so much for listening to this week's message if you would like more information about our church be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.